Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. There is no victory where there is no enemy, and so death must be an enemy. It is the worst enemy and the last enemy. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're hearing a sermon by Richard Sibbs. We're going back to the 1620s. This would have been preached somewhere in England. It's titled, Death Swallowed in Victory. Troy, how is your week going? It's going great. We had some birthdays we celebrated. Um, Elise's birthday from Martyrs and Missionaries and our daughter are back-to-back. So every week... Or every week, every year, we have to celebrate a fun back-to-back birthday week. So it makes for a very busy, oh, happy birthday. busy time. Exciting! Did you guys so do they, anything fun? Yeah, we traveled to a nearby town, and where we live is uh, in Sahanakville in Cambodia, and we went to a nearby town called Kampot. Had some good food, lots of really good Italian restaurants, which is not what you would have maybe per- perceived as what you would be eating a lot of in Cambodia. But they've got really good Italian restaurants. Um, it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. All of us got super sunburned, but other than that, it's been really good. So yeah. What about you? Troy, my week has been pretty good. You know, I cannot complain. Uh, we, we do want to give a shout out to some new Patreons, Rick and Shanda. Thank you so much for joining us on the Patreon team. Troy, we're talking about Sibs today. Joel, we have done an episode on Richard Sibs before. Uh, what is neat is I actually didn't, this was not intentional, but two years ago, almost to the day, we put out an episode on Richard Sibs, and this is almost the identical time frame we're putting out the next episode we're doing here on Richard Sibs this week. And also, uh, the same person who read it. This was not intentional either. I sent the sermon to the gentleman who's going to read this for us, this sermon, and he was like, I'm the one who read your last Richard Sib." So in a lot of ways, this is a little deja vu. It's the same week with the same guy reading a Richard yeah. Sib sermon. Um, but if you have not listened to that episode, we'll mention it you know, a couple times here, but the sermon is I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. It's an older episode. You're going to have to scroll down in your feed a long ways. I mean, two years ago, we've done a hundred sermons since then, but there's some good information on the backstory of Richard Sibbs if you like it and it's a great sermon so definitely go check that one out from you know about two years ago it's funny somebody was messaging us on Twitter and they were like yeah I think I found you guys back in like 2017 2018 well that that'd be impossible because our show is less than three years old but even with less than three years we have 150 episodes of Revive Thoughts and that's a lot of sermons but if you go way back 100 of them you'll find this old Richard Sibbs one to check out yeah, yeah. So Richard Sibbs, again, we're talking the late 1500s. He was born in 1577 in England. So imagine, you know, this is like Great Reformation fallout period of time, right? Uh, his dad was a wheelwright, which is a guy that repairs wheels on wagons. And he was good at it. He liked doing it. He wanted to see his son become a wheelwright, you know, carry on the family trait, carry on the family tradition of repairing wagon wheels. And while Richard Sibbs was, you know, he didn't have anything against wheelwrights and uh, in, in repairing wagons, he didn't, you know, necessarily have a passion or a desire to do it he wanted to do his own things and uh, his dad was a believer you know it seems like for all intents and purposes he was raised in a, in a 
God-fearing Christian household. And it does seem to kind of hurt his dad's feelings a little bit that he, he didn't want to continue on with the family trade and instead went on to do other awesome things with his life. There is some kind of humorous like excerpts from his biography where he's just talking about how like his dad would switch out some of his books with carpentry tools to kind of <laughs> to try to like try to edge him towards like isn't this, isn't this pretty cool isn't this uh you know uh chisel pretty neat didn't work though uh, in 1595 he went to saint john's college i just like to imagine like one day you know uh richard comes down and he sees a bookshelf but instead of books all of these are like hammers and nails and being like huh how'd those yeah. get there you know but really these are more fun and that's that's how i know that's not probably how exactly it happened but in my head that's what i want it to look like so you see that like yeah that scene from a sitcom like i feel exactly. like it's very uh, made for tv uh-huh. yeah now elise and i were talking as i was working on this and she's working on the next episode for martyrs and missionaries and she mentioned how sometimes the place where you get the greatest pushback is your family, the people who care about you, who love you the most, or who want to see the best in you, who most invested in you, or sometimes the people who push back absolutely the most. And I just want to like, send a little message to people. If you're in that situation, maybe you are one of those people who just kind of feels like sometimes it's a family that's holding you back. You can see here Richard Sibbs, um, another gentleman, Andrew Gray from our show, Annie Taylor from Elisa's show. Sometimes those people who we look up to today, we don't realize how much their families and close friends were against them and the ministry that God had called them to, you know, hold firm. Uh, you're, you're in a good place. You're, you're in, you, you know, you're, there have others who have done what you've done and have gone through those shoes. You've been in other people's shoes before, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so this is not uh, untread ground. It's very common for Christian believers. Yeah, it's relatable. Yeah, especially ones like this. And you see that with Richard Sibbs here too. Hey, again, his dad didn't seem to hate him or anything. He just, he really saw he, that he had a better path for him in the wheelwright world. Now, even though he went to a Christian college, um, he was listening to really famous preachers for that era at that school and at their chapel. Um, he he went through, he got a master's degree in 1603, in 1602, but he did not become converted until the year after he got his master's, kind of out of the Christian college in 1603, when he was 26 years old. That is when he would finally become a Christian, uh, even though he sat through so many sermons and would have heard, again, some of the best preachers of England at that time. It wasn't until he was 26 and out of school that God changed his life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. It's, it's that personal journey that everyone has. You know, some people uh, come to a saving faith uh, as as a child and other people, even though they're in Christian climates, uh, don't come to that profession of faith until much later in their life. And uh, it's different for everyone as far as their journey and, and when they have that, that clarity and that acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's neat to see, again, I, I just find it interesting, that uniqueness uh, that everyone's own journey and, and how they get to Christ. I wish we knew more about the his conversion. We It's not very well documented. We see that um, he mentions it being during a sermon that he heard at church, that and he'd been attending this church for years, and so it seemed to be something where something just clicked with him or some conviction came upon him. His biography goes cold there. You know, it picks up five years later in 1608 where we see him being ordained, and so there's kind of this time jump from him uh, professing his faith as a Christian and then becoming an ordained minister. I don't know why it's like that. Uh, again, this is 400 years old, so we'll probably never know why, but that's that's what we know. That's what we have documented. 
1610, he became a lecturer at a very important college called Holy Trinity College. Um, he worked at the time for the Church of England. And I, I don't know, it, not to get too in the weeds of details, but remember the Church of England is kind of the state-run church at the time when they broke away from the Catholic Church in the 1500s. And for five years, he was working there, but they eventually, they let him go. They fired him uh, because they said he just seemed too Puritan. And that's another reminder. If you've ever listened to some of our episodes during this era, you know this is a wild ride where the Puritans, the Church of England, the Presbyterians, all these different groups of people are fighting over who's going to control, who's going to lead England. Um, Right in this same era, 1610, 1615, we see the pilgrims are leaving for America, and the Puritans that are going to go to Massachusetts, to Salem, are right behind them a few years later. If you wanted to listen to a sermon from that, you could go to John our John Winthrop, listen to City on a Hill, and hear about the Puritans that went to the New World. Pretty cool. You could also go to Deep Dives and hear about the Puritans and the Salem Witch Trials, which we've done an episode for our yeah. Patreon members. So yeah, I'm just I'm just full of shout outs today, but let me tell you. But anyway, so <laughs> this era though we're talking about where there's all this conflict, who's going to run England? The Catholics are still trying to kind of come back and take it over. And that's where he is. So he's seen as, hey, you're leading a little bit too Puritan. But in some ways, it was kind of a little bit too late. When, when he came to Cambridge, Cambridge was kind of dead. It was lethargic. There was not much spirituality. Everything was just academic. But Sibs had such a heart, had such a passion that people say that he just kind of snapped Cambridge back to life and that Cambridge had to actually extend the buildings, build more seating to fill the rooms. There were so many people coming to hear him preach and teach and speak. And so by the time that they let him go and say, oh, you're just too Puritan for us, Uh, It's too late. He's already become a very famous name. Two famous preachers themselves actually credit Sibs preaching during this time at Cambridge for changing them. Thomas Goodwin said he had been an Arminian, but listening to Sibs preach changed him and moved him over into the Calvinist camp. And another gentleman, John Preston, says that listening to him preach made him put away the jokes, the entertainment, and the performance and realize he wanted to be a preacher who teaches the real spiritual truths without all of that extra, that that actually reaches the hearts of people more. So we can see he's having a huge impact on this school of Cambridge and on this place where he is at and that things are changing because of his preaching. So by the time they let him go and say, you know what, you're too in this Puritan camp for us, it's already, you know, in some ways too late. His name is already well known. He's already changed a lot of lives. Yeah, and he continues preaching and teaching at, at lots of different areas, lots of different colleges. Uh, he goes on to to be a teacher to a lot of really famous ministers and pastors that would come through, you know, that would that would claim I had him as a teacher uh, when I was in seminary or wherever it may be. And uh, he ends up getting his doctorate degree uh, in divinity from Cambridge. And he's given the nickname the Heavenly Doctor around this time. And we don't know for sure. It's pure speculation. But uh, there was also this poem at the same time that calls uh, Richard Sibbs out by name in a line that says, Heaven was in him before he was yet in heaven. And so some people, uh, it, it makes sense, you know, speculate that that's how he got the nickname, the Heavenly Doctor. Uh, people claiming that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. In 1633, by the way, that's one of my life aspirations yeah. is to have a poem written about <laughs> me. That's you. You've made it in life. You've done pretty good. If if you people writing poems about yep. you, no, I, I, you know I, it's not I, as common in today's day and age. But still, still, I, I thought the on. same thing. You know, I, I look. If you're listening and you are not able to do poetry, I will settle for a rap or a song. You know, just the old, the yeah. old revive thoughts anthem. Just, just a that's sea fine. Shanty, yeah, I'll, I'll a take jig. a sea shanty. I, um, I definitely draw the line <laughs> at jig though. That's we're not that kind of show. Okay. In 1633, uh, he was also offered the head position 
over Holy Trinity, the place that kicked him out at one point, uh, but now the king is in power and he says, hey, come back and run Holy Trinity. And he was over uh, Holy Trinity for many years and he preached and taught there until he died in 1635. Kind of different, but Sibs, he never married, he never had a family. And he's not the only man like this. You know, we look through the people that we covered, uh, people like St. Augustine, uh, who we recently did an episode on, or, or T. Dewitt Talmadge. He also never married or, or had a family. Richard Sibbs, although he never had a, a family, he never married, we see this family and friends. And it sounds kind of cheesy, you know, to say like his, his friends were his family, but he really did have uh, some really good friends that he seems to you know, have taken that, that personal connection of, of being a family around him. And, and it seems like people, you know, counted him as family. He got to write 13 introductions to books of different Puritans uh, throughout the course of his life. If you have followed this podcast in other episodes, you know that the early 1600s and mid-1600s in England is just a super contentious, difficult time full of fractions, divisions, and who's going to be the lead of England when it comes to, you know, Jesus Christ and the church. Yet Sibs was really quite well liked by everybody. He was this rare guy who was kind of tolerated by all the different parties. He was seen as a holy man who loved God. He inspired so many with his sermons. He was able to kind of cut through all the fractions where even if you weren't on the same theological camp as him, you really respected Richard Sibs. He was uh, just this really beloved guy and is still one of the most read uh, of the Puritans to this day, even to this day, People pick up the bruised reed. This is actually how this sermon got into my, um, got back into my sphere as I was reading a Richard Sibbs book. And uh, the gentleman who reads this sermon for us, he was also reading the same book and we connected on it. I said, hey, you should grab another Richard Sibbs sermon for us. So he's just a very well-read person. Uh, 200 years later, Charles Spurgeon, the very famous man known as the Prince of Preachers, described him as, Sibbs never wastes a student's time. He scatters pearls and diamonds with both hands as you read or listen to his work. Um, he's still a favorite. I mean, just so many. If you look up people who've been influenced by Richard Sibbs today, you'll find so many modern preachers giving him uh, quite the shout out, even still 400 years later. Yet during his time, it was contentious, divided. There was fighting. The church was you know, just having all these different issues. Again, people are leaving for the new world. It's a big thing. Yet this one man was able to preach Christ to so many and be respected, not because he was, you know, pleasing the world, but because his focus was so on Christ and he was so able to show the goodness of Christ in all things. I think you will see that as you listen to this sermon. destroy in this mountain the face of the covering sheet over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. While our soul is in the body, it's guided by our heart. In Christ, there is nothing but sweetness in the faith that may refresh a man in the worst condition, if he can just have a taste of it. Now, because the spiritual things of Christ do us no good when they are hidden, Therefore, the Holy Ghost sets down a promise that God will take away the shadow cast on all people and the veil spread over all nations. Isaiah 25, 7. Now, there are some things that will ruin our joy, but here in the text is security against these 
that our joy may be complete. He will swallow up death in victory, and he will wipe away tears from all faces. The prophet, having spoken of a great feast before, an excellent feast, sets out here the services of that feast and what accompanies it. First of all, there will be light to see the excellency of the feast. The veil is taken away, and a knowledge is given to know divine things in a spiritual way. Then the fear of death was taken away. He will swallow up death in victory and wipe away all tears and all sorrow. This is an excellent promise. Imagine a man sits down at a feast, furnished with all delightful foods, and royal butlers attend to his every need, and clothes of the best kind were given for him to wear. But all the while, a sword hung over his head, ready to fall upon him at any moment and behead him. Well, it would certainly dampen his spirit and spoil the joy of his feast. So to hear of spiritual excellencies, and yet death and hell and damnation coming too, oh, where is the comfort that you speak of? And so to make the feast even more perfect, there is not only light and knowledge, but a removal of whatever may dampen the feast too. He will swallow up death in victory and wipe away tears from all faces. Death is here presented to us under the word victory. It is a fighter, as one that we are to fight against, a soldier. And then, here's the victory, Christ overcomes him, and overcomes him gloriously. It is not only a defeat, but a swallowing of him up. Usually, God uses all sorts of enemies of their own kind against themselves. He causes those who spoil to be spoiled. Those that swallow up, to be swallowed. So death, the great swallower, is himself swallowed up. Death is the great king of kings. Death spares none. Beloved, death is the great king of kings and the emperor of emperors, the great captain and ruling king of this world. For no king has such a wide dominion as death has. It spreads its reign and victory over all nations. He is completely a tyrant. For a tyrant spares none, and neither does death. He subdues young and old, poor and rich. He levels scepters and spades together. He levels all. There is no difference between the dust of an emperor and the lowest man. He is a tyrant that governs over all. So there is equality in him who he spares none. Death has continued since the beginning, since it was led in by sin. He's continued from the beginning of the world to this day. But he is a tyrant brought in by ourselves. Sin let in death. It opened the door for death. It is no creature of God's making. Satan brought in sin, and sin brought in death. And we all lose ourselves to the powerful stroke of this prevailing tyrant. And therefore, sin is called the cause of death. Sin arms death. Hell is the assistant of death. Sin brought death and empowers death. The weapon that death fights with and causes great terror, it is sin. In the fear of hell and damnation. So that wrath and hell and damnation empower sin, and it brings a sting of itself and puts a venom into death. All cares and fears and sorrows and illnesses are lesser small deaths. They are echoes of death itself. But the assistants that follow this great king are the worst of it all. As I saw a pale horse and death upon it, and after him comes hell.
What would death be if it were not for the pit and dungeon that follows it? So that death is aided with hell and hell with eternity. There is no victory where there is no enemy, and so death must be an enemy. But it is the worst enemy and the last enemy. What does death do? It deprives of us all comfort, pleasure, communion with one another in this life, all callings, or whatever we enjoy. The grave is the house of oblivion. Death is terrible of itself, even to nature, as Augustine says, where it is not swallowed up by Christ. For it is an evil in itself. And as I said, armed with a sting of sin, after which follows hell. Now this death is swallowed up. When the scripture puts a person upon death, it is not wrong for us to speak as the scripture does. The scripture puts a person upon death and a kind of triumphing spirit in God's children over death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Death is the greatest swallower, and yet it is swallowed up by Christ. Death has swallowed up all, and when it has swallowed up, it keeps them. It keeps the dust of kings, subjects great and small, to the day of judgment. For then death will be swallowed up itself. It is this that Solomon speaks of when it cries, Give, give, and yet is never satisfied, like the grave. Yet this death is swallowed up in victory. Christ swallows up death in victory for himself and his. But now does death get swallowed up? First of all, because sin brought in death, our Savior Christ became sin. He became a sacrifice to his Father's justice for sin. He was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us to take away the curse we deserved. And now that sin has been taken away, what has death to do with us, or hell, or damnation? Nothing at all to do with us. For upon the cross, Christ did nail the law, and sin, and the devil. There he reigned over principalities and powers, which were only executioners let loose on us due to our sins. And God, being satisfied for sin, the devil has nothing to do with us, but to train us when it is for our good. Christ also took part of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, the devil. So Christ by death overthrew Satan, because by death he took away sin, the sins of all, and bore our sins upon the cross, and was made sin for us who knew no sin. Christ is ours if we believe. For then Christ is given to a particular man when he believes. Beloved, Christ upon the cross did triumph over all our spiritual enemies, sin and death and all. It was a kingdom of patience, a double kingdom of Christ, a kingdom of patience, a kingdom of power. Christ on the cross, suffering punishment due to sin, overcame the law and the devil and sin, which is the kingdom of patience. The kingdom of power he has in heaven. If Christ were so able in his kingdom of patience to conquer our greatest enemies, what would he do in his kingdom of power? As Paul reasons, if by his death we are saved, how much more that he triumphs in heaven and appears for us, he is able to show greater matters to us.
Christ conquers for us and in us. If Christ in the days of his flesh did conquer, how glorious will his conquest be at the day of judgment? How since Christ has conquered all in his own person as our head, then he will conquer for us in his heavenly body. What is now done in his person will be done in his members. In the meantime, faith is our victory. His conquest over death is our victory. His victory over all our spiritual enemies is our victory. Everyone that believes is a conqueror of death, even if he dies, because he sees it conquered in Christ his head. And as it is truly conquered in him, so Christ will conquer it in all his members. For as Christ in his natural body has gone to heaven to appear on our behalf, so will the heavenly Christ be fully in glory. He will not leave a finger behind, but he will triumph over all our spiritual enemies. You see then how death is swallowed up by Christ, and truly swallowed up in him. And by faith this victory is ours, and time will come when in our own persons it will be swallowed up in victory. For we could continue on this, but let me hurry to make an application for us. Death was conquered by Christ when he had given way to be under the power of it. Notice, I urge you how death is swallowed up by Christ in his own person for our good. He gave a great advantage to death, for death seized upon him upon the cross. Death cuts the soul from the body. Death had him in his own trap and in his grave for three days. But no, even though this great king and tyrant death had a great conquest over Christ himself, but here was the glory of his victory. When death, this great conqueror of the world, had Christ upon the cross, and in his own dominion in the grave, where he rules and reigns, consuming and swallowing up all, death was forced to give up all. And Satan thought he had a great morsel when he devoured Christ. But there was a hook in his divine power that caught him, that when he thought he had swallowed up Christ, he was swallowed up himself, and his head was then broken. He never had such a blow as by Christ on the cross. Through Christ's triumph over Satan, death was subdued even in his own kingdom, and that makes the victory so great. Through death, seizing on Christ without right, Christ has freed us from the evil of death when it had right to us. As death has lost all its right by eating up Christ, and so it has become a bee without a sting, so the great swallower of all is swallowed up itself at last by Christ. For we see God gives way to his enemies for a time, and then he will take a glorious victory. Now for our use of this. First, let us consider that God oftentimes gives a great deal of advantage to his greatest enemies. God uses a strategy of retreating. He seems to retreat and give freedom to his enemies, but it is to triumph and trample upon them with greater shame, for he will stomp them into dust after. Christ gave death a great deal of freedom. He was crucified and tormented, then sent to the grave, and there he lay. And this was to raise a greater triumph over this great prevailer. It is continued in the church, for he does give way to his enemies of the church. They may come and say, aha, aha, so we can take it. Now the poor children of God are where we would have them. But then comes sudden destruction. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 
God, to make this victory more glorious and more to prove their cruelty, comes upon them when they are in the top of pleasure, and the church in the bottom of ridicule. Then God swallows up all in victory, as Christ did death when it seemed to have been itself victorious. This is a very comforting thought, for if death is overcome when it seems to overcome Christ, what do we need to fear any other enemy? Christ has broken the net as an eagle or great bird, and the rest escape by him. You may dwell on this in your own meditations. He will swallow up death in victory. It is said for the time to come that he will swallow up death, but Paul says it is also past and swallowed up already. Faith says it is done, and so it is in our head. Were it not comfortable now to all true Christians to hear that the church does better and that the enemies were swallowed up, for they are just the instruments of this inferior death. Let us get the spirit of faith and see them all conquered, for certainly they will have the worst in the end. He that has swallowed up death in victory will swallow up all that causes death. And so the scripture speaks of these things as past. Babylon has fallen as a millstone cast into the bottom of the sea. Get a spirit of faith, and we will never be troubled with Babylon. For all the enemies of Christ and followers of that man of sin must go down and partake of the judgment threatened in Revelation. Heaven has decided it, and all the policies of Rome and hell cannot change it. They are already swallowed up to faith, and Christ will rule till he has put them all under his feet which will be done not only to destroy them, but to raise himself higher. Again, if death is swallowed up in victory, work to be one with Christ, who was crucified for our union with him. Begin with your union with Christ. Your first union is with Christ lowly, and then our union with Christ glorified. And labor to see sin that is brought into death, subdued by the power of Christ's death in some measure, and then we will have comfort in his death glorified. For in my holy mount, death is swallowed up. That is, the true church of Christ swallows death. Labor to be members of Christ. Otherwise, death will come as a tyrant indeed, armed with a terrible sting in full force to attack you. It is the most terrible thing to see death come armed with the wrath and anger of God and assisted by hell and damnation. So then work to be one with Christ crucified, to get our sins crucified, and ourselves partakers in his death. And then there is no damnation and no fear of death to them that are in Christ. They may die, but they are freed from eternal death, and they will rise again, even as Christ's body rises to glory. Get into Christ and desire the power of his death that subdues sin. In the amount we grow in that, we grow in boldness and joy, and we grow in the privileges that come in following Christ. Again, when we are in Christ, truly members of him, then let us be thankful to God for this victory. Thankful to Jesus Christ that has given us victory. When we think of sin, of death, of judgment, of hell, of damnation, let us be grateful as a Christian should. Now, let him that has the most terrible and fearful things in the world as conquered enemies say, O blessed be God for Christ, and blessed be Christ for dying for us, 
and by his death, disarming death of his sting, that now we can think of it in our judgments quietly. Now we can think of all these as conquered enemies. This is the fruit of Christ's death. They are not only enemies, but friends in Christ. Sin is the remainder of it, for the guilt of it that binds over to damnation has been taken away. The remainder of it serves to humble us, make us feel the power of pardon, and to desire another world where we will be all spiritual, so that death is part of our freedom. All things are yours now, both life and death. Death does us many excellent services. It is a door and passage to new life. Death is the death of itself, for it destroys itself. We never truly live until we die, and when we die, we move past our fear of death, so that sin dies, misery dies, and death dies altogether. Although it takes us from comforts and work and friends here, yet it is a change to a better place and better company and better work and better conditions when we are in glorious condition called eternity. And therefore we have cause to bless God in Christ that took our nature and in our nature disarmed our greatest enemy, sin. For this freed us from the wrath of God and hell and damnation. Oh, we can never be thankful enough for this. Again, if death is swallowed up in victory, let us be ashamed of the fear of death, since we believe that Christ says he will swallow him up, and he has already done so in his own person. Will we be afraid of an enemy that is swallowed up in our head and will be swallowed up in every one of us? If we cherish fear, we show we do not value this promise, for it is a promise that in this holy mountain death will be swallowed up in victory. So why should we fear a conquered enemy? None fear an enemy that's conquered already. But how is it Christ fears death, but we are not to fear it? Answer. Christ had to deal with death armed with a terrible thing, with sin and the wrath of God, and therefore, when he was to die, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But death is disarmed to us. He had to encounter sin and the wrath of God and death in all its strength, but we do not do so. We are to deal with death like the bronze serpent that has the shape of death but no sting at all. It has become dull ever since it lost its sting in Christ. Life took death that death might take life as he said. O blessed thoughts, nothing is comparable to the thoughts on the death of Christ. It is the death of deaths. And then again we are certain of victory, for it is conquered in our head, and so will be in us. But you say we are to fight the pangs of death, and many troubles meet us in death. Yes, but Christ trains us to overcome death ourselves by faith, and then we are sure of victory. Join these two together. It is conquered in Christ our head, and will be conquered by us. Death keeps our dust, and must give them all again. But in the meantime, we die. Answer, it is so, but we are sure of the victory. We fight against death and the terror of it in the strength and faith of his victory. He that has been our Savior in life will also be so to death, and not then to leave us to death, and in death forever. He is ready to help us in our final conflict. There are two types of men that I would speak to a little. They're fools 
that in a carnal bravery condemn death before disarmed in Christ. First, those that in a kind of bravery seem to ignore death, men of low spirits, or as we call them, fools. These vainglorious spirits, empty spirits, is there any creature without Christ that is able to slight such a great enemy as death? Armed with a sting of death and assisted with hell and damnation? The Romish and devilish spirits are terrible. But if your sins are not pardoned, it is the most terrible thing in the world to die. For there is an uncrossable gulf afterwards. What will we say then of warriors that for vain glory are reckless with their lives? That for a foul word, a little disgrace, will venture on this enemy that is armed with sin, and if they die, they die in sin. And then, in the miserable condition of him that dies in sin, his death opens the gate to another death, which is eternal. They say they have repented, but there is no repentance of a sin to be committed. Can you repent of a sin before it is committed? That is but a mockery of God. And what do the scriptures say? Is it not the most terrible judgment under heaven to die in our sins? A man that dies in sin dies in hell. He goes from death to hell, and that is eternal. I'm amazed that the thinking of flesh and blood should take away men's wit and faith and grace and all of it, so much as to ignore death and repentance, as if it were so easy a thing to do. Now, beloved, death is a terrible thing. It has a sting, and you will know it if you do not have the grace to feel the sting of it while you live. When you die, the sting will revive. Then your conscience will awake in hell. Drunkenness and joy takes away a sense of sin, but sin will revive and conscience will revive. God has not put it into us for nothing. Death is terrible if it is not defeated beforehand. And if you die without defeating it before, it will not be outmaneuvered. It is not an enemy to be scorned and slighted. And therefore, be Christians in good earnest. Or else you may leave your profession and perish eternally. For we must all die, and it is a greater matter when we do. But if we are true Christians, it is the sweetest thing in the world. For it is the end of all misery. The beginning of true happiness. A place of whatever is comfortable. Blessed are they that are in the Lord by faith, and those that die in the Lord. For their death is better than the day of life. Our birthday brings us into this life of misery. Now let me speak to true Christians and tell them to be ashamed of fearing death so much. For this enemy has become a reconciled friend. Of comfort to those that are in Christ is that death is not only defeated, but has been made a friend. This next thought will yield great comfort to those that are in Christ Jesus. For the Holy Spirit means more than a bare minimum victory over death. Death is not only defeated, but has been made a friend to us. As in Psalm 110, it is said that his enemies will be his footstool. Now a footstool is not only trampled upon, but a help to rise up. And so death is not only subdued, but it advances God's children and raises them higher. It is not only an enemy, but a reconciled friend. For he does that which no friend in the world can do. It ends all our misery and is the entrance to all happiness for eternity. And whatever is taken from us here, it gives us a life far better in another world. It cuts off our pleasures and profits and company and callings here. But what is that to our blessed change afterward? To our praising of God forever? 
to the company of blessed souls and the prophets and pleasures at the right hand of God forever. And so, it is not only conquered, but to show the excellency of his power. He has made it a friend, and the best friend in the world. It indeed separates soul from body, but it joins the soul to Christ. So the joining we have by it is better than the separation. I desire to be dissolved, says St. Paul, but that is not well translated. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is the best of all. Why? You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What are ours? The things present, things to come, life and death. It is good that death is ours, because sin is our enemy. It is a remainder that is kept in our nature to exercise us and humble us and fit us for grace. As Augustine said, I dare be bold to say it is profitable for some to fall, to make them more careful and watchful, and to prize mercy more, so that not only death, but sin and the devil himself is ours. For his plots are for our good. God overshoots him in his own bow. He will give them over to Satan, says the apostle that they may learn not to blaspheme. Yet though they have a spirit of blasphemy by the humbling of their bodies, they are taught not to blaspheme, so that not only death, but sin, and he that brought sin into the world, the devil, has become our good. This being so, it may be for special comfort that we do not fear the king of fears. The devil has great advantage by this fear, when it is let on this object death. Overcome death, and all troubles have been overcome. Who will fear anything that has given up himself completely to God? Skin for skin, and all that a man has, he will give up for his life. The devil knows that well enough. Therefore fear not, says Christ, those that can kill the body. Fear causes snares, says Solomon, snares of conscience. But if a man has overcome the fear of death once, what more can be done? But if they take away life... They cannot take away that which is better than life, the favor of God. If we die in the Lord, we die in the favor of God. This is better than life. And we will be found in the Lord on the day of judgment, and will be forever with the Lord in heaven. The worst the world can do is to take away life, and here they do the godly a favor. The worst the world can do is to take away this nature of ours. When they have done that, they have done all that they can, and when they have done that, they have done us a pleasure. That is not to be feared, says Tertullian, that frees us from all that is to be feared. And what is to be feared in the world? Every sickness, every disgrace. Why, death frees us from all, for the soul goes presently to the place of happiness. The body sleeps a while, and death has no more power. He who believes in me, says Christ, he will not see death but has passed from death to life. He will not see spiritual death, but as he lives in Christ, will die in Christ and rise again in Christ. He that has the life of grace begun will have it finished without interruption. It's a point of wonderful comfort that death is so overcome that we are in heaven already. And it is no hard speech, but stands with the truth of other points. For are not Christ and we all one? His body is there, and isn't he the head of his heavenly body? He that carried his natural body, will not he carry his heavenly body there too? Will he be pieces in heaven? 
Therefore, we are in heaven already. The best part of us is. We are represented in heaven, for Christ represents us there as the husband does the wife. He has taken up heaven for us. Christ cannot be divided, as Augustine says. We sit in heavenly places already in Christ. And what a comfort this is, that while we live, we are in heaven, and that death cannot hinder us from our resurrection, which is the restoring of all things. And therefore, as the apostle says, comfort one another with these things. These things indeed have much comfort in them. Let us work then to be comforted and fruitful in our places when we consider the victory we have in Christ, as seen in 1 Corinthians 15. It is an excellent chapter that largely proves Christ's victory as the cause of our victory, because he is the first fruit that sanctifies all the rest. Finally, my brethren, be consistent, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain when it is in the Lord. He raises that command of fruitfulness and stability from this very ground of the victory Christ has gotten by death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Be like the apostle who can think of death and sin, the devil and all his malice, and not be afraid. Yes, think of them all with comfort, for we are not only freed from their tyranny, but they are our friends. Christ has the keys to hell and death, a saying taken from the custom of governors that carried the key. He has the government in command of hell and death. Our bodies are safe in the grave, the dust will be fitted for a heavenly body, and Christ that has the key will let them out again. So trust until times of restoring come, and then we will have a glorious soul in a glorious body. As the Apostle says, I urge you to think of these things and get comfort against the evil day. And to that end, be sure to get into Christ, that we may be in Christ, living and dying, and be found in Christ. For the Scripture says, Blessed are they that die in the Lord. It is better to die in the Lord than for the Lord. It is an argument of blessedness to die for the Lord. But if it is not in the Lord, it is to no purpose. If there is granted this happiness of dying for the Lord, it is well. But blessed are those that die in the Lord. Why? They rest from their work. Christ takes them off from their labors, and all their good works go to heaven with them. Their life is full of troubles and burdens, and therefore labor to get assurance that we are in Christ. For there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ. How blind are we to put away preparation for death until it comes. He that forgets Christ, and getting into Christ all his lifetime, it is God's just judgment that he should forget himself in death. So labor to be engrafted into Christ by faith, and that we may know it by the Spirit of Christ prevailing in us over our natural corruptions, more and more. As the Apostle says, There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ, for the spirit of life has freed me from the law of sin and death. Then we may say with comfort, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Sin has no law. It is in us as a subdued rebel, but it does not have a throne. Some hope to be saved by Christ, and yet they set up a throne in the soul for sin. Sin bids them defile themselves, and they must obey it. This is a woeful state, 
How can we expect to die in the Lord except those who have been freed by the spirit of life? When kings conquer new lands, they bring with them new lords and they bring new laws. And when we are taken from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of Christ, the fundamental laws are then changed. Christ, by his spirit, sets up a law of believing and praying and doing good and abstaining from evil. The law of the spirit of life frees us from the law of sin and death. I urge you, think more about these things in your thoughts this week. They are things we must all understand and take a hold of beforehand, before our final day. The part I think that stood out to me the most was this idea of you're at the feast, right? You're, you're enjoying the feast. It's a good feast, but hanging above your head is a sword, right? The sword of Democles is a sword that's going to come down and kill you. Uh, at any moment, that can happen. And I just think about that word picture, and it's truly how we live life. We all live life knowing at any moment we can die. And at any moment, all the things that we have, the good things that we have can be taken from us. Yet at any moment, our lives can end. But... At the same time, through Jesus Christ and through the death he has, that death is now no longer effective. Even though that sword can fall on us at any moment, no matter how good life is, the sword is now blunt. It cannot end us. We have our end in Christ. And so now we no longer have to live in fear of that sword, but we just know that it's there. And at any point, it will come down and land on us. And instead of being the worst moment of all time, it'll be the moment we transcend and go to be with the Father in heaven. And so it's truly, actually, a good thing in a sense and that is what death being swallowed up in victory truly means i think what sibs did a good job of describing thank you for listening to today's episode of revived thoughts today's sermon was narrated by lee jones of the reformed meditations podcast head on over to reformed meditations podcast to hear more of him lee jones uh, staple of the Revive Thoughts Church History Trivia <laughs> Night, uh, and uh, one of one of the top winners there. He knows he, he yep. knows his stuff. He's he's pretty good at church history trivia. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we are going to ask you to go right now to if you're an Apple listener, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five star review, and say hey, here's why I like the show, and let people know about this show and how they can listen to it and if you don't have apple don't give up go to youtube you can give us a like on youtube when the videos come out or you can subscribe there or you can find some other player where you can rate us or you know give us a like on our social media something like that but every little bit of help gives us a little bit more growth gives us a little bit more of a way for people to find us and check out our shows it's always a big help when you give us a five-star review and it allows other people to find this show and to be a part of what we're doing here. So we do appreciate it very much. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.